0: down here? Okay, my office is on the 20th floor, my studio is on the first floor, and I'm out of breath because I'm all over the place. But welcome back to Everyone Talks to Liz. I I love to ask this type of question. Who's happy when they're handed down a multi-year prison sentence? (laughs) Any of you guys fond of that idea? Yeah, I didn't think so. But my guest today is actually happy that he was sent to prison because it changed his life for the better. Now, on the outside... Just about everybody thought he was already living his best life. Craig Carton was a sports radio superstar. His show, I know a lot of you know it, Boomer and Carton, which he anchored with the former Cincinnati Bengal quarterback Boomer Esiason, was one of the most popular out there. He was making money. He was having a great time. But on November 7th of 2018, he was convicted of wire and securities fraud stemming from this extraordinarily complicated scheme he came up with to pay off his gambling debts. This, though, is a story of self-growth, redemption, and the opportunity to get a second chance on life and do it much better than before. So please listen up because you're not going to believe where he is today. I am so honored to welcome Craig Carton to Everyone Talks to
2: Liz. I appreciate it. And I'll answer that first question. No, nobody wants to be sentenced to prison, uh, including myself. And while prison's part of my story uh, in changing the narrative of my story and the direction my life was going in, uh it's not a joke, it's not fun, there's nothing positive about prison itself. Right. It's what you as an individual decide to do with the experience both before you go away, while you're away, and then the day you get out cuz you know life continues. Uh and I tried to use that experience as you said to better myself and to rebuild relationships and all of other things.
0: But retrospectively when you look back in that rearview mirror You saw this as a chance at a second life that is today so much better. How many years were you sentenced to?
2: So I I was sentenced to uh, three and a half. Yeah. Uh, So 42 months. I was in prison, physically in prison for a year, just over a year. Uh, And then house arrest um, and community confinement Mm -hmm. uh, for a year after that with the ability to work. Uh, and my sentence has now expired. I served my time. I paid my my price. Uh, still on probation, yeah, uh, for a little bit less than another year. But I was actually away, and I was a number. And mm-hmm. I say frequently when I speak to people now about my story, and you know, it's centered around gambling more than anything. Yeah, you know, that there was a period of time where I was no longer Craig or Carton or the guy on the radio. Or really, had a point in my life where you can kind of have your, your sense of of worth beaten down and beaten out of you. Self-inflicted, mind you. But I was at that point where for a full year of my life, and really beyond that, I was a number. And I carry that number with me to this day. So I have my prison ID with me at all times as a reminder that as I do rebuild things, and I'm blessed to have new successes in life, professionally yeah. and personally, that I never forget the guy I was for albeit a brief period of time, that that guy got me in trouble and I carry that ID with me good for you I, I i know my listeners
0: are dying to know exactly what kind of scheme you came up with but i want to start with the great part that people saw from the outside which was you a big radio star at the height of your success yeah but there was a very we call it the the dark pool on Wall Street, where there's dark pools of trading, and it's very shadowy and it's dangerous. You had a very dark pool that you were swimming in.
2: Yeah, I've watched enough episodes of Billions and Suits now to know I would have been a great lawyer. <laughs> 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 no shows, no whether it's real or not. I for a period of my life I would have fit right in. You know, the only thing I object to is I didn't create a scheme. I didn't have a scheme. I wasn't running a scheme or anything like that. I was certainly making bad decisions mm-hmm. and I was uh, involving myself with people I knew to be bad. And for whatever reason, I don't understand quite yet uh, it, as I kind of go over my life with great clarity now, why I chose to continue to make bad decisions and associate with people who I knew weren't right, sure. people who I knew weren't living their lives in the manner I always lived mine. Uh, and I'll always struggle with that decision because like you said, your know, radios, you know, it's a tough business. And I was blessed to get to a stage where I'm in the biggest market in the world. I'm in the top one-tenth of 1% financially of people that do it. Mm -hmm. I've got success. I've got fame. I have a beautiful family. I have all the trappings of success. And I worked hard for them. My first job in radio, I made $12,000 a year and lived in a retirement home in Buffalo, New York. And now here I am making millions of dollars in New York City, the toast of the town. uh, And everything's great. And I would have had that job for 35 years if I wanted it. And I was self-destructive. And that's all based on ego more than anything else. I started to buy into the character I played on the radio and lost sight of who I really was and all the hard work that it took me to get to that stage of success.
0: Buffalo, 12 grand. You and I were actually in Cleveland at the same time. I was there from 92 to 93. I was 91 to 94. Yeah. And you were huge there. And from Cleveland, you went where? So from
2: Cleveland, I went to Philadelphia. So my radio arc was fascinating in that I know nothing about how to do radio the right way and successfully. Mm -hmm. I get a job in Buffalo, August 24th, 1991. Seven months later, I'm in Cleveland and I'm making 30 grand. And a year later, I'm now in Philadelphia. And as sports talk radio is starting to grow and grow and grow, I'm the youngest guy in America doing a major market full-time sports talk radio show. Mm. Uh, And Philadelphia had great success from 93 to 97, was nationally syndicated, made the rounds to Denver, and then I finally got a chance to come back home and go to WNEW here in New York City and failed miserably. You know, the ratings of that show, that rock is still dropping, you know, deep (laughs) in the recesses of the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) But it was humbling. Uh, And it also taught me the lesson that I need to learn how to do radio better. Okay. And I got this great opportunity in New Jersey to not do sports. You know, Prior to that, I had either done sports or a real kind of blue-collar, Stern-esque morning show. Uh, you push the envelope blue type humor when I was in Denver. And I had great success with it. I was number one, but that wasn't me. And when I got to Jersey, I had this opportunity to do a combination of some political talk, some guy talk, but more current events, lifestyle type talk. Mm -hmm. And it's there where I became a more well-rounded broadcaster and then got to a level where New York came calling again.
0: That's very interesting. And and when I look at people who are getting into TV, local news, I say, do it all. Don't just yeah, do the chocolate festivals and the entertainment, which is fun. Be there freezing. your took us off on you know, the, the interstate with the measuring stick of how much snow there is. Be there comforting somebody who's just lost their family in some horrific tragedy and learn how to anchor so that you are much more valuable and you are well-rounded.
2: Yeah. So when I also you, think, to interrupt for a second, the benefit of that, and I tell my kids this, as you grow up and you decide what path you're going to take. So for us, it's broadcasting, right? It's you need to learn not just what you like doing, what you're good at doing. You have to learn what you don't want to do. Right. So for me in radio, I was a producer. I was a board op. I was an update guy. And all along the line, I realized the one thing I did really well, I could talk into the microphone without a script and engage an audience typically of younger men. Well, I can't read a prompter. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not the best producer because I want to talk. And part of my kind of voyage from Buffalo to Cleveland was learning what I didn't want to do or what I wasn't good at doing. And that allowed me to focus big time, like a laser, on exactly what I wanted to do. Then it's about creating who you are. How did WFAN come about? So FAN was interesting. Uh, I'd been at NEW already. Yep. Um, I was back in Jersey. And Howard Stern announces he's going to Sirius XM. And I got a phone call about potentially replacing Howard Stern. Wow. Amazing, right? Amazing. I go through the interview process uh, and I'm going to get the job. I'm going to replace Howard Stern, at least in New York and possibly in Boston, West Palm Beach and Philadelphia. And this is a life changing gig. I leave the meeting. I call my wife. Honey, pack your bags. We're moving to New York City. I'm replacing Howard Stern. And at the time, the company that owned my radio station in Jersey, for lack of a better description, was more mom and pop. They okay. weren't a big conglomerate. They owned a handful of stations. And I was very important to their bottom line because my show was so successful in New Jersey from a sales revenue standpoint. And they gave me the blessing to go talk. I got all the paperwork done, did everything above board and right. And unbeknownst to me, while I'm being offered the job to replace Howard Stern, they send a fax, if you guys even know what a fax is anymore, <laughs> right? They send Back a fax. in the day. Yeah. They send a fax to CBS at the time and saying, if you want to hire Craig Carton, it's $2 million and the number grows when you pick up the phone, essentially saying, we're not letting him go. So I get that phone call in the New Jersey Turnpike driving home where I'm celebrating the fact that I'm going to make a lot of money, be replace Howard Stern. And this is my shot to what just happened. We're not hiring you. And I said, give me 24 hours to make it right. And they said, you got 24 hours, but you cannot get fired in those 24 hours. Oh, okay. Which is my plan. I'm going to get fired. I'm mid-level. Right. <laughs> and I went to the company. and said, look, you represent like 70% of our bottom line. We're not letting you go and we'll pay you an obscene amount of money to be here, but we're not letting you go. And I told them that I would never sign another contract with them because they embarrassed me. All they had to do was say no from Jump Street. Yes. I never take the interview because I can't. But they allowed me to get to that stage of getting the job and then pulled it out from underneath me so i'm in jersey miserable because i (laughs) fear i lost my big opportunity and don imers got fired and the day don imers got fired my phone rang and they said please tell us you haven't signed a new contract we've always wanted to work with you this is a better job for you than the stern job Because whoever replaces Howard, even if they're good, you're not going to get his numbers. No way. So if he has a 20 share and you get a 10 share, you lost half the audience, right? And this is a much healthier radio station, blah, blah, blah. And then it was just about who I was going to work with. And that very quickly became Boomer Esiason. And we started that show uh, in September of 2007. And like you said earlier, had a 10-year run where we were untouchable. When
0: did the darkness begin as far as, because there, there's an issue that drove this going yeah. deep back into your past. But as far as your first moment where you gambled and then you got sucked in to the gambling addiction. Yeah.
2: I gambled my whole life without a problem up until a certain point. As a kid, I gambled. We were exposed to gambling. Now, I don't come from a gambling family. My father never made a wager in his life, Mm -hmm. but I was always enthralled by it. I worked at Yonkers Raceway one summer during college as an internship. I was aware of spreads. I knew how to talk the language, and I was a very good card player. And I'm gambling the way any normal person would gamble, recreationally, responsibly, never too much, and not even that often. Okay. And then one day, we're doing our show famously down at the Borgata in Atlantic City, Boomer and I. And I flippantly make the comment, if you give me $10,000, I'll play blackjack with it. And tomorrow, I'll give you 25 grand back. And this became a big deal on our radio show where A, is Boomer going to come up with the money because he's got boxing gloves on when it comes to money. <laughs> he doesn't like touching it, right? He likes making it. He doesn't <laughs> like spending it. And B, could I do it? So over the course of a couple months, this is a bit on our show. And I can truthfully tell you that Of all the things we did, it's the only thing in 10 years I still, to the day we did it, wasn't sure if it was a bit or if I really was going to go ahead and do it. Uh, So the day before we go to Atlantic City, he gives me $10,000 in cash. We go down to Atlantic City. I set the parameters, which are you can't watch me do it Okay. because I don't want you over my shoulders if I lose the money. And all I know is that I've guaranteed you a two and a half X return on your investment. And now we have a handshake. Got to live up to it. Okay. That night I went $80,000 playing blackjack. And the next morning over the course of four hours, I pay him back the 10 grand. I give him 15 on top. He's got his 25,000 bucks. I feel very good about it because I did it. And now all of a sudden I'm the blackjack whisperer. And there are enough people in New York city with available funds who want to now be involved in that lifestyle. So I get approached by people I'd either met through work or people I don't even know saying, hey, if you're that good at blackjack, would you want to gamble with $100,000? Oh would you God. want to gamble with two fifty dollars and up and up and up? And I'd said yes to all of it. Mm-hmm. Because again, egotistically, I think I'm the best blackjack player in the world. And now I have access to significant sums of money. Significant sums of money at a blackjack table allow me to do things the average gambler can't. I change the rules at the table. I can split aces twice. I can effectively change the odds of the game to make it almost perfectly 50-50. I've got a fighter's chance now to win a lot of money because I'm staked to a lot of money. And the deal I made with, there were really essentially four different entities that loaned me money to gamble was you get your money back plus 10% in a week. So if you give me a million dollars, I'm going to give you 1.1 million back in seven days. All right, so an extraordinary amount of interest, but as I continued to do it and the numbers went higher and higher and higher, mm-hmm. I clearly became addicted to it, like oxygen that yeah. I need to breathe where I can't go to a table now and bet 50 bucks. I'm now gambling 10, $15,000 a hand, Oof. every hand. I can't get enough of it. And then I get to the point because I was successful at it early where every casino in the world wants my business. I'm being offered private jets, helicopters, Uh, and lots of other things to bring my business to a casino because I'm the guy that's willing to lose X amount of dollars. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back.
1: Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you, and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then Every Life is your solution. Every Life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today.
0: When did you realize, oh, my God, this is this has me. I don't have it. It's got me by the throat.
2: Um, I have clarity now. I can't answer that question in the moment. Okay. But I do know, looking back on it, that I was well aware that what I was doing not only wasn't normal, wasn't healthy. Because it's one thing. If I go to a casino, let's say, make it up, once a month, and even if I go with an obscene amount of money, it's once a month. Mm-hmm. Now I'm looking at gamble 24-7. And I got to the point in my life where gambling sadly became more important than anything else in my life. And you had kids, little kids. Four beautiful kids, an amazing wife who were none the wiser. Everybody knew I liked to gamble. Mm -hmm. I had a deck of cards in my pocket 24-7. I did magic tricks and all that stuff. I talked about gambling a lot. And every vacation we took was centered around a casino. Oh. Every weekend we got away was centered around a casino. And I justified it by saying, we got the best room. We got the best accommodations. The travel's amazing. Private jets and all that stuff. Who's going to say no to that? And I assured people, eyeball to eyeball, I've got it under control. I remember di- di- distinctly There's one time... A uh, casino in Bimini, in the Bahamas, which is the westernmost uh, part of the Bahamian islands, mm-hmm. about forty-five minutes uh, to Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, and you can boat there. You can, uh, you know, take one of those sea jets there, all that stuff, right? And I remember they they brought me Teterboro Airport, a seven thirty-seven jet. Come on, that had been you know rehabbed for this type of travel, so it's like you know the Taj Mahal inside a seven thirty-seven jet. And how many people do you want to bring? Well, I don't know, 30? Great, done. We'll give you four houses on the beach. Mm. So there are things like that that, again, fed my ego. Suck you in. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, if you win a million dollars playing blackjack, wow. Now winning half a million is not enough, right? If And you can walk away up half a million bucks and you don't. And famously, and I know I'm a little all over the place here for you. That's okay. Uh, was, my
0: my people are with you. They good. are listening and
2: they are gotcha. following, trust so me. So the the worst gambling moment I had, um, I was down at Hollywood Hard Rock, a place to this day, I'm up millions of dollars, lifetime to date, with nothing to show for it. And I walked in with a half a million dollars. And about 12 hours into my trip there, maybe a little less, I was up $1.5 million. And 24 hours later, I walked out the door without a nickel. Oh, my God. That's a problem. Gosh. I'm doing a radio show in New York City. Right. And I'm on the air at 6 a.m. I get there at 4 for prep. And I'm in a car in the Poconos at 3.30. And I played blackjack. And I'll show you one day the paperwork. I drove all the way from New York City to the Poconos. I played blackjack for nine minutes. I won $300,000, got in the car, drove back to New York City so I wouldn't be late for the most popular radio show in America. And that's the life I started to live so when you ask, you know, when did you know that it took a hold of you? Right. I always knew I ignored it. I denied it. I would have lied to your face about it if I had a problem. If you had asked me as a caring, you know, loved one, a relative, a friend, I became a world-class liar about it. And all I cared about at that moment wasn't about winning. I didn't care about losing. I just needed to play.
0: And we haven't even gotten to the part where you actually were charged with a crime. Gambling yeah. is not a crime, everybody. Nope. It is not. I'll get to that in a second, but uh, there is a poignant story you have about a moment where one of your children is asked to do a little sort of Q&A at school. My first grader. Tell me about that.
2: So my youngest son's name is Anthony. He's in first grade, not now, at the time. Mm -hmm. And you come back from summer break and like most, you know, uh, public elementary schools draw some pictures as a first grader of things you like to do. Mm -hmm. You know, what did you do on your summer vacation? And my son drew the picture in the name of three casinos as a seven-year-old, that that's what his favorite thing to do is he loved going to Borgata. He loved going to Hollywood Hard Rock. Mm -hmm. He loved going to Bimini. And he loved going to these places that I took him, which were all casinos. And that one stung. Mm. Uh, And I ignored it, but it stung when I saw it because I'm very well aware That's not normal. A seven-year-old shouldn't be talking about a casino. Not the gambling part of it. Of course. He was playing in the pool and the the water slides. He couldn't have told you what a deck of cards was. Right. But he knew the name of the place. And all three places he drew in his first grade, you back from Summer Report, were casinos. Yeah, and that one, to this day, hurts. So when
0: did it toggle from just a gambling addiction to an actual crime? And what happened?
2: Um... So, it doesn't go just A to B, obviously, right? Nothing, right, right. I don't think anything life really does. The more successful I was and the more money I had, and in a period of time where I, I was also winning a lot of money, I had extra funds to play with. So, I considered myself this great entrepreneur and I started half a dozen of 10 companies. I own the rights to every North American professional sports team for Band Aids. What? Okay. Oh, really? Every single player and team, I own the rights to Band-Aids. So if you want a New York Jet Band-Aid, I own it. All right? You're talking about the thing people put on Mm wounds that Mm -hmm. has a picture of a New York Jets logo. Mm -hmm. And every player. I had to deal with all the player associations as well. That's creative. You want a Tom Brady Band-Aid? I own it. So I did that. Mm -hmm. I also, I had the exclusive jewelry design and manufacturing rights to Fredericks of Hollywood. I had to deal with the family of Muhammad Ali to make uh, boxing glove um, cufflinks and earrings and charms. So I started getting involved in too many businesses, never saw any of them all the way through to success. I think if I had just done one at a time, I would have had a chance to be successful. But I'm now taking that gambling spirit away from the casino, and now I'm gambling with my money on business opportunities, none of which i spent enough time individually with to be successful. So that's the way I'm going. And then I start learning more about the secondary ticketing market, which is a legal, very, very uh, a fruitful business that many companies, you know, your Stubhubs, your SeatGeeks on, on, a, on a global scale, sure. even Ticketmaster, uh, that people make a significant amount of money doing. Well, I had relationships with arenas and team owners. I have money and I have access to money. So why shouldn't I start buying blocks of tickets and selling them online legally, and make money that way. Because I understand the math involved with it, and the finances involved with it. It's a lucrative business. And very long story short, when the Super Bowl was at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, I was friendly with uh, the guys at the time, they're no longer there, that ran Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And I called them up and I said, who has the hold? Which means what uh, producing company, or like a Live Nation, a production company, or promotion company, Who has the hold on your building, meaning who has the rights to your building the night before the Super Bowl, which is the biggest night of the year? Mm -hmm. And I kind of caught them with their pants down. They didn't have anybody. They hadn't even thought of the building was just under a year old. Other than Jay-Z opening it, they're trying to figure out the concert business, and they're always going to be second to Madison Square Garden. The Prudential Center's open, and they're trying to figure out how to book the building. So I said, I'll take the hold. Well, what do you know about booking a building? I said, nothing. (laughs) But I knew enough to ask. (laughs) Okay. I said, give me 30 days. If I can't fill the building the night before the Super Bowl, I'll release my hold and do what you got to do. And at least I've given you some time to figure it out yourselves. Great, no problem, because we're personal friends. I go to CBS, who owned WFN, my radio station at the time. And I said, guys, look, I got the hold on Barclays Center. It's mine. You guys have an outdoor uh, concert company. Let's combine forces. I'll turn it over to you, I'll be your partner. You book it, I'll take half the money. And now you guys have a great event the night before the Super Bowl. Yeah, and people are in town, they're looking for things to do. (laughs) Great, we're in. So we booked the Red Hot Chili Peppers at Barclays Center the night before the Super Bowl. The Red Hot Chili Peppers get 900,000 bucks. The concert made a profit of just over $900,000. And I'm pretty pumped because I'm going to get a check for 450. And they said, well, the deal's kind of changed because you didn't really do anything. We booked the Red Hot Chili Peppers, But here's a $20,000 fee to introduce the band. What? And that's what I got. So I was incensed over that. Okay. And I, Barclays then calls me. And Barclays says, listen, clearly you know how to book a building. I didn't. CBS Mm -hmm. did it. We want to put you in business to book our Dark Nights. And I start a company co-owned by Barclays Center called Dark Knight Ventures. Okay. Right? Thought it was clever. Nothing to do with Batman. I'm going to fill the Dark (laughs) Nights at Barclays. But I knew nothing about it. So through some other people, I was introduced to a person who had great experience in that business, booking events, had sold his company to Water Music for like $13 million, was the guy. I meet him, I get in business with him, and that's where my story starts going downhill because at the time, unbeknownst to me, he had this secondary ticketing operation and it wasn't all on the up and up. Uh. He didn't have access to everything he said he had access to, but was able to raise a lot of money as if he did. So now I'm sitting here with these arena contacts and money and I went to a hedge fund to get a loan to fund my purchasing of tickets on a grander scale. So if I'm on my own, if I'm buying a hundred tickets to an event, I'm going to make a thousand dollars. If I can buy a million dollars worth of tickets, you can do the math. All of a sudden now I'm making legitimate life-changing generational wealth money and it's legitimately on the table. I can buy the best tickets before they go on sale to the public, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. So the hedge fund gave me $10 million to do that. Me thinking money was fungible didn't realize that it matters what dollars you use to buy the tickets. Of course. So what I did, which is wrong, although I didn't know it at the time, which is why I don't like the term scheme. Okay. I used, I had a black American Express card. I bought 2.1 million dollars worth of tickets on my Black American. You Express can do card. that. You can do that. I over need the one of, of those. Time, okay. I need a Black American so, Express card. So, when the money came in from the hedge fund, I used my credit card to buy the tickets, and I used the liquid cash that they wired into a bank account to gamble. Ah, uh, okay. So my my argument, my defense, why I wasn't offered a plea deal, but I wouldn't have taken it if I was. My defense going into court was I bought everything I said I was going to buy. The hedge fund took the stand and acknowledged they saw every ticket I bought. They agreed that I bought every single ticket. I bought every ticket. We showed the tickets on display, but I didn't use their money to buy the tickets.
0: Craig, you hear the judge say, you will be sentenced to three years in prison.
2: What was that moment like? Uh, worst moment of my life for sure. But it was worse than that because the judge in my case, and I don't talk a lot about this and won't until I get to next year. And then I'm happy to come back and, you know, fill in a lot of the blanks for you. But she was a fan of mine. She listened to me on the radio before she sentenced me. She opened up her soliloquy by saying first time, long time which is the kind of code that callers to sports talk radio stations say when they're calling their favorite show for the first time. First time caller, caller. long time listener. Bingo. That's how she opened up. And for a brief second, I thought, I'm good. Right? Now, the problem is that the jury then found me guilty. So the jury finds me guilty. I'm in trouble. She now decides my sentence. Um, And that was just a horrendous day And. She uh, said, you know, some good things about me and the life I had led prior to this and ultimately gave me three and a half years.
0: What did your children say?
2: Uh, there was a lot of crying and very tough times for them. Mm. And I became estranged from them for a little bit of time as we all tried to figure out what the hell daddy had done. I had to figure out who I was and what I was going to do and what kind of man I wanted to be moving forward. And it was not fun and there are scars from it still. And I'm blessed that I'm still in their lives. I'm blessed that they've given me a second opportunity to do right by them and to re-earn, you know, their trust and faith. But for a guy that for a long time, I think if you ask them, my kids viewed me, this is going to sound egotistical. I don't mean it to be. Like a lot of young kids, they view your parents as Superman or Superwoman. And the way I described it was, you know, I forgot how to fly. Um, and it, I, I, I'll never make it 100%, I don't think for especially my older kids, but I just try every day to show them love and let them know that I made a mistake and I've come back from that mistake and I own that mistake. I don't deny it. And I think it's a, it's a valuable lesson to a lot of people, including my kids, that you're not perfect and bad shit, pardon me, bad stuff's going to come along your way, whether it's self-inflicted or not. And how you react to those bad things really determines who you are. This is everyone talks to Liz and we will be right back.
0: But it wasn't the first really bad thing that happened to you No, way back in your childhood. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't lean on this and use it as an excuse. I don't. But it has had an effect of something that happened to you when you were a kid.
2: Yeah, I really don't talk about it. Uh, and I probably should. And the, the the worst part of this, what you're asking me, is that there are people that read my story. When you when you go through what I did in court and you're found guilty, you go through what's called a pre-sentencing report. And basically someone from the probation department literally interviews you about, it's your entire life on display. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, that's not hyperbole. It's what did you do when you were five? They go all the way back and they want to get the entire picture of the life you've lived prior to getting in trouble, getting in trouble, and, and obviously since you, you know someone got arrested. So I had to tell them the truth. This is a story I've never told publicly. I don't talk about it at all. I buried it, and I lived with it, and I've dealt with it the best I could do with it, which I'll acknowledge is not the healthiest way to live with childhood trauma. Um, that being said, what really hurt me was that the story came out in court publicly, mm. and there were people that thought I was trying to use it as a matter of getting a, a lenient sentence. I merely answered the question. Right. I had to tell them what happened because it happened. And it's part of my life story. At no point did I blame, you being molested as a child on why 30 years later, I made a bad decision with money, uh, an illegal decision that cost me three and a half years of my life and my freedom. But it was positioned that way, which to me is ugly. And it's it's an issue I've always had with the media, and I'm a part of it, where it's easy, it's low-hanging fruit. So let's attack the guy that's down. And by the way, I have enemies in media because I have a big mouth on the radio. There are people that were gunning for me and happy that I got in trouble (laughs) celebrating my demise. So this was another opportunity to say, what a bad guy he is. He's inventing a childhood trauma to save his ass from prison. And that's just not the case. I never blamed it on that. I merely told the probation officer, this happened to me. And maybe it's why I gamble. And maybe it's why I'm a bit of a loner. And I didn't want you know, attention. And when I did gamble, it was in a cocoon. And I wanted the most privacy. You know, you see a lot of people gambling and it's rah-rah and they're celebrating and chest bumping and high five and yelling. You never would have seen me gambling because I wanted the most private room in every casino I could get. Mm-hmm. I didn't want the attention. So I think that's how I manifested dealing emotionally with what happened to me was gambling, not breaking the law. Right. And mm-hmm. I never equated the two. But yeah, when I was when I was younger at a summer camp, I you know was dealt a bad hand, pardon the pun, but and had to figure out a way to emotionally deal with it, overcome it without any help. Yeah. You know, I didn't grow up in a loving family where hey, we recognize there's something wrong with our kids, so we're going to talk to him and tell them we love them and open up. That's not how I grew up. So I was alone in the world trying to figure out as a nine year old. Um, what the hell was happening to me, why it was happening, and deal with you know, suppressed anger and hurt uh, really by myself. So the defense mechanism for me was just cut everybody out of any deep feelings. So my entire life, until I got married and my children, every relationship I had was a surfacy relationship. I, you know, my wife's best friend was a great woman. We went on a family vacation once, and I pulled her aside and I said, just so you know you're not going to get to know me any better on this vacation. I want to set your expectations. And she's like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm going to get to know you better. I'm like, you're not. So I just want you to know like, I'm not a talker. Okay,
0: that's a weird thing to say to yes, somebody. Yes,
2: but that's how I protect you. You're myself. not a talker. Oh, my all God. Off am off air. I
0: fair. know, but this is what's amazing to me. A- and as you served your time, that to me is very, very brave and important, and you own it. You get out and
2: let's fast forward to... Can I stop you for one second? Yeah. I just want to do a callback to what you said at the very start of this. The most valuable thing I took out of prison, outside of recognizing what was important to me and what's not important to me, I met so many people in prison who if you read about them on a piece of paper, you wouldn't want anyone in your family to be within a thousand miles of them because it reads badly. And I would say I walked out of that place with a greater empathy for other people and other people's situations, Uh, race, color, creed, religion, any of it, didn't matter. And I met some of the most loyal, caring, giving, honest, forthright people, men in my lifetime who on a piece of paper look really bad, who I would trust with my children. And that was one of the great lessons I took out out of prison, was not judging people based on what they look like, who they are, what they did, that there's a story there somewhere. You just have to be willing to find it. Well, giving people a second chance. And let's yeah. get to the second Sorry. chance you got. Yeah, blessed.
0: Today, you're back on the radio.
2: Yeah. So I have a saint in my life. Um, he doesn't like when I talk about him, so I won't say his name. Okay. Who told me when I got out of prison, he ran the radio station uh, in New York, uh, both before I went away and when I got out. He retired. And he came back to work at WFAN for one reason and one reason only, to make sure that I was okay and got a job. Uh-huh. But it wasn't when I got out of prison. So the deal he made with me was, when you tell me you're good personally, when you and your wife have started to repair the damage you caused, when you and your kids are in a good place, when you're in a good place mentally, emotionally, physically, I will take your call. But I will not take that call until that day. So don't call me. You know, until you think you're ready to have that conversation because I have a lot of tough questions for you. How long did it take? So he came to visit me in prison. So we talked a lot throughout you know, my time there. Um, but I got out in June and I started working this is 2020. Mm-hmm. I didn't go back on the radio for almost six months. So November 2nd, I think it was, I got the job and was back on WFN doing afternoons. That ultimately led me going to Fox Sports. But, you know... I think we all these people in our lives, whether we recognize it in the moment or not, who you know are there for us and will be there for us. And we have to recognize that they exist. And one of the things I didn't do was take fair stock of who's in my corner, who's not. And I'm not talking people that needed stuff from me or wanted anything from me, just unconditional friendship. And when you go through this type of hardship, you learn very, very quickly who are your friends and who aren't. Now, you're going to be disappointed by a lot of people. There's going to be some people that are money good the way you hope they're going to be. And then there's a group of people that you never even considered who are going to be in your corner and have your back who pleasantly surprise you. Yeah. So I've experienced all of them. The bad stuff, the people I thought were like ride or die. Right. And people I never considered who are now a major part of my life and keep me you know, on the straight and narrow. And I'm happy to say I haven't gambled in over five years. I'm rebuilding things, and those people are a major part of, of my story.
0: Oh, Craig, what an inspirational story. And I, what I find really, really important here is you were down. Yeah. But, man, you didn't let yourself be out.
2: So I, I, I went from making a couple million bucks a year to a vivid memory I have. We bought this kind of you know, bougie weekend house at the time, you know, back in 2015. And I remember literally going under couch cushions for change so that I could buy something to eat for breakfast. So I've I've experienced it, I've lived it. So part of that empathy I have is also from my own you know, existence and story. So you, literally the highest of highs, a personal driver, you know, cars, the house, vacations, to literally I'm counting quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies so I can try to get a slice of pizza.
0: So as we finish up, what would you say to people right now who are listening who are really down, what was that one thing
2: about you that kept you going? That's a tough question. Uh, I struggled today with trying to figure out why I stopped gambling. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't gambled in over five years, and I can't tell you why I stopped. And that's a problem for me because my kids were always the most important thing to me. My wife, my family, that never changed, and yet I didn't care and I gambled anyway. And then all of a sudden, one day, I just stopped. And it was a pivotal moment. I went to a casino. I went to rehab, a gambling rehab center. Finally admitted I had a problem. And despite going there and figuring out that I had a problem and owning I had a problem, my ego said, you could still gamble. Yeah. Just do it under control.
0: Yeah.
2: And I went to a casino, and I left $30,000 in cash in my car. And my deal with myself was, if you lose the money you go in with, you're not going to go to the car and take the 30 grand you know is in there. I made a wager with myself. And over a couple of hours, I lost the money I had in there. And I went right to the car and I got the 30 grand, lost that, and that's the last time I ever wagered. The lesson, I think, is, look, it's not easy. No. You know, recovering from addiction is not easy. Oh, let me rephrase that. I, I think overcoming addiction is easy. Will, having a willingness to overcome addiction is the fight. And those are two very different things. Once I decided I was never going to gamble again, not gambling is easy. It took me a long time to admit and actually say, I'm not going to gamble anymore because it costs me everything and I don't want to live my life that way. But overcoming it was the easy part. Wanting to overcome it, and I know it's semantics, was a very difficult part. And I think that is the hardest part for addicts, wanting and committing yourself to overcoming it. But you know, I'm like a poster child for second chances, And a poster child for people who did wrong. No one wronged me. Self-inflicted wounds. And I had a choice I had to make when I got out of prison. You know, I'm going to live another 50 years, knock on wood. What do I want that life to be? You know, no job is beneath me. Right. But who do I want to be? Who do I want my kids to see? And it does take work. You don't fix these problems overnight. So I think if you're willing to put in the work, if you have a support system around you, and I'm clearly blessed to have a support system around me, people that love me and care about me, and now believe in me again, you can overcome anything. But it starts with you. And that's the most important lesson of all this is no one can do it for you. And you can blame the world. You can howl at the moon all you want. But until you're willing to look in the mirror and own it, without shame, you have all the regret in the world, but you have to own that it's you. And once you do that, Life gets better, like overnight gets better because I used to have shame that I was an addicted gambler, a compulsive gambler, because who wants to be an addict? Who wants to admit to other people, I'm an addict, whether it's drugs, booze, gambling, whatever it is, I never wanted to admit that I had great shame with it. And once I overcame that, which is all ego-based, I now talk about it and part of my life now every day is counseling young gamblers who are at step one of their recovery Excellent. and I get great satisfaction out of that. But I'm living proof that... There is no hurdle you can't overcome. You may never get the financial success you had. You may never have the big house or the nice car again. But there is a life absolutely worth living if you own the fact that you're the problem. And that's my message. He's got his at least part of his bougie life back because <laughs> he's scratched and clawed for it. Craig, what a great yeah, story. Thank you. I did have sushi for lunch. So, yes, I have a little <laughs> bougie-ness. A little, a little bougie back in, yeah.
0: Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Craig Carton, Fox Sports. What time can they? So it's get? Fox Sports
2: 1. It's 7 a.m. to 9.30. Okay. We do it right out of here, out of New York City. It's uh, now on Fox Sports Radio on Sirius XM. And I appreciate this platform because what, I, what I'd say a lot, if I may go on a soapbox just for 30 seconds, is we need to start humanizing addicts. Yeah. You know, we look down on addicts a lot. And whilst we're society, I think, is in a better place today in regards to understanding and acknowledging that addiction is real, I think more people like me need to share their stories. Because my hope is that one person hearing this interview, recognizing the traits of a loved one or even in themselves, and does something about it. And I think that's the key part of this is humanizing addicts and making people understand none of us want to become addicts. I didn't want to gamble my life away Mm -hmm. and then make bad decisions around it. And I'm blessed and you'll be blessed too. Just own your mistakes, own who you are and understand that you're a person. There's people out there that do care about you, even people that never met you. There are lifelines out there. And I hope that people reach out and you know use their lifelines for their betterment.
0: I'm getting emotional because mm. I've known addicts. I've loved addicts yeah. in my life and my family. It's very, very real. And you have just given a huge important guide in the audio sense here. And I, I hope people take it and run with it. And, and thank you. Thank okay. you. I appreciate so it much, very much. So much. You guys, I'm I'm not even going to give the old, oh, watch me at 3 p.m. Eastern <laughs> on the and Countdown. See, I snuck that it in. Is that? Uh, because, <laughs> because this was so valuable, heavy, but important. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you next time want to listen ad free you can do it with a fox news podcasts plus subscription on apple podcasts and then amazon prime members you can listen to this show ad free on the amazon music app